you will please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me tell you about a church sign that I saw this week. Took a picture of it. It was good. Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever done. Now, that's, that's interesting. There's something important there. It almost gets to what I was trying to get at last week about not using Jesus. I, I implored you last week to stop using Jesus as, as a means to an end. as a means to to finding life out there somewhere, but to realize that in him is life, like I believe it was verse 4 said last week, that he himself is our life and, and not just a tool for us to use to try to get either eternal life or some life improvement or ease. Not to look at Jesus as the path that leads us to treasure, but that he himself is the treasure. So this this falling in love with him, right, not just with what he can give me, I get that. I like that aspect of this message. But in another sense, this sign gave me pause. Like lots of church marquees do. Because I don't really know if Falling in love with Jesus is something we do. And I certainly don't know if it's something that we do. Certainly not something we decide to do. As if being encouraged by the black plastic letters as I drove by, I said, you know what? You know what would be a good idea? If I fell in love with Jesus. It didn't happen that way for the Apostle Paul. He didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I've decided I want to fall in love with Jesus. No, in fact, he hated Jesus. And he persecuted people who might have said or expressed a similar sentiment of falling in love with him. So so that aspect of the roadside message, eh, not quite. But it got me thinking about this passage this morning. These verses that we have in the prologue of John's Gospel— And it got me thinking about a much larger question, a very important question that we, uh, probably many of you have already considered, we ought to consider it, and I'm going to ask it even though it's only going to be partially answered by this passage and by this sermon, but that's okay. It'll be for you to wrestle with for days to come. And the question is this, why is it that some people do fall in love with Jesus and many, many don't. Or asked another way, why do so few people follow Christ? And for those that do follow him, why do they follow him? To what can they attribute their love for Jesus, their, their decision to follow him, right? Think about that, right? If you're a Christ follower, 
you've got lots of folks around you who aren't. What made the difference? You may even have siblings. You follow Christ, they don't. What made the difference? We're continuing in the prologue to John's Gospel this morning, this this wonderful introduction. And it's giving us a glimpse of what's on the pages ahead. Including that many reject Jesus, but some receive him. They receive the one sent from God. And and this is the introduction, remember, so we're going to have to be patient to see things fully developed later on. But there's still a whole lot of substance even in these introductory verses. So I want us to dig in. I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. These are the very words of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We've prayed for it already, so please be seated. So, truly some great introductory material here. Uh, John introducing some of the subject matter that he'll devote much more time and go into much greater depth later in the gospel. But just look at the three big things that he covers in our verses today. He introduces us to John the Baptist. He speaks some of this rejection that Jesus met when he came into the world, but also of the reception that he got by some. And so we'll put that under these three headings that are in your worship folder, if that helps you follow along. God preparing the world rejecting, and children receiving. So first off, God preparing. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give some type of an introduction into John the Baptist. Now, there are lots of Johns in the Bible, and it's easy to confuse them, so I don't want to confuse that they're all crystal clear in your mind this morning. So real quickly, John, whose Gospel we're currently studying, right, He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was the son of a man named Zebedee. James and John, the sons of thunder. So the author of this gospel was one of the 12 disciples, son of Zebedee. But then there's John the Baptist, who we see mentioned in our verses today. The one who heralds the coming of Jesus and the one who baptizes Jesus, we'll get to later. And then even later in the New Testament, in Acts, you'll come across my namesake. John Mark. Now, when you see John mentioned in this gospel, it's going to be John the Baptist. Okay? 
because when the writer of this gospel refers to himself, he uses the phrase, the disciple Jesus loved. Right, little autobiographical, sentimental uh, phrase that captures the close relationship. Uh, Jesus is the one that was leaned against uh, Jesus' breast when they were at the Passover table together. So John the Baptist, mentioned in verses 6 through 8, this man sent from God. There in verse 8, we see an important thing about John the Baptist. He was not the light. Okay? He was a big figure, larger than life in many ways, but he was not the point. And that's something that we will find later on that John the Baptist not only knew but embraced. He understood that. He had no problem with that whatsoever. He knew what his function was, and his function was to point to Jesus. So why, if John the Baptist is not the point, do all four Gospels make a point to point out John the Baptist? And I think part of the reason is that in John the Baptist, we see the heart of God. When we consider that God sent, there verse 6, God sent this man, and he sent him with a purpose that we see in the middle of verse 7, that, if you're in adult Sunday school right now, you're keying in on some of these purpose words, right? He sent him that all might believe in him, right? That's the heart of God. The Father wants people to believe in the Son that he sent. Right, that, that's the, the self-expressed purpose of this gospel that we've already looked at in chapter 21. Right? John's writing these things down. He's making sure that we get these things about Jesus that we might believe and in believing have life in his name. Right? John wants people to believe. God wants people to believe. He wants them to fall in love with Jesus. Allah, the roadside sign. Right? And because of this, he doesn't just send the son and say, all right, good luck with that. I hope you figure everything out. No, he sends the son, but before he sends the son, he sends a forerunner. He sends someone to prepare the way. To get folks thinking, prepared for, oh, this is the one that we've been waiting on all these hundreds of years. John the Baptist himself is, is the prologue to Jesus, if you will, just like we're studying the prologue of, of this gospel. right? And even John the Baptist's coming was prophesied about. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's coming. Get ready. The minor prophet Malachi in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Right? It was in the heart of God and therefore in the plan of God. Not just to send his son in the world, not just to send Messiah, 
but also to send one to go ahead of him to prepare people for his coming that they might believe. And so John the Baptist does just that. And again, we're going to get to much more detail later about John the Baptist, later in chapter 1, definitely. But suffice it to say and to see right here that God was preparing people to hear, to see, to receive the word, the light that he was sending into the world. So that's God preparing. But what about the second one, the world rejecting? We spoke last week some about the rejection that the word, that the light would face. We saw in those verses light shining in darkness, but darkness would not overcome it and did not overcome it. And these middle verses in our passage today get more specific about the rejection Jesus would face. Let's look at 9 through 11 again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So a few things to point out here. First, this aspect of of Jesus being the true light. John says, Uh, he's telling us that Jesus is the true light. And I don't think that so much as in a sense of comparison of, oh, here's true light over and against all these other false lights, right? Though there are plenty of false lights out there, I don't think that's what John is trying to get at here because what we're going to see in John's gospel over and over and over again is how Jesus, with him there's a sense of of ultimacy, okay? Um, In the wilderness, Moses led God's people, and through Moses, God provided manna. He provided bread for his people to eat, right? Later in John's gospel, right, uh, Jesus is going to provide some bread for his people. He's going to multiply it for his people. But then he's going to say, you know what, guys? I am bread. I don't just give you bread. I am bread. I'm the bread of life, right? Right? We see that some with light, too. Right? Uh, there, there's lots of sources of light. Right? The, the prophets were light for God's people. God sent prophets with his word that served as light for God's people. Um, but Jesus is the ultimate light. Jesus is the capital L, bold font, all caps, you know, light. With all the emphasis, he'll get to the place actually at a festival of great, of, of great many lights involved. And he's going to interject into that and say, I am the light of the world. So there's this sense of ultimacy, that, that Jesus is the ultimate of everything that he is. He's the true light. He's the light that far exceeds all those lesser lights. He's light without comparison or equal. And not only is he light... Right? But this word also says that he gives light to everyone. That, that's to say that the light Jesus is and, provi- <coughs> and provides is available to all. Right? Which is a wonderful thing, but it's also a damning thing as well. No one's left without excuse. His light shone brightly and widely. But as we find, the vast majority reject the light. 
It is a tragic irony that John explains in verse 10. We've already seen in earlier verses that we've covered how Jesus, the Word, was active in creation. Right? It said that He was with God in the beginning and that everything that was made was made by Him. And so we see here in verse 10, He's in the world that He created, but that very world didn't know Him, didn't recognize Him. That yet in the middle of that verse 10, Again, if you're in adult Sunday school, you're learning these connecting words and the importance and you're, they're beginning to jump out at you, right? That yet just screams, this should be so obvious that we should know and receive the one who made us yet. And, and the verb that's used here actually suggests a flat-out refusal. It's not a simple failure to recognize, you know, where you say, oh, we didn't know. Oh, we couldn't, we couldn't tell that was you, right? I hear things like that from my kids a lot. Oh, we didn't know. We weren't supposed to do that, right? Oh, if only we had known. But this is not that. This is an obstinate rejection and refusal. I will not know him. I will not receive this light. And last week we looked at some of the reasons why. We looked at John 3.19 and about people hating the light and loving darkness instead because of the presence of evil and because of the reality of our enemy blinding people to the light. And so this rejection is, is doubly bad. One would expect on some levels for the world to reject Jesus, right? John is going to talk about the world. It's, it's the Greek word cosmos. He mentions it, like, I think it's like four times more than all the other gospel writers combined. He's always talking about the world, and it almost always has negative connotations when he does. Right? It's always suggestive of this active rebellion against God. So in one sense, yes, we are shocked by uh, the rejection of those rejecting the one who created them. On one level, of course, that is shocking, but on another level, it's got to be expected. Now, what's truly heartbreaking is verse 11. And the rejection that he receives when he comes to his own. Right? He comes to his own kinfolk. He himself, a Jew... Doesn't the sense of family count for anything? Sure is a strong thing here in the South. Right? But, it, but it's, it's not just that blood relation. It's not just that sense of family that's betrayed. It's much bigger than that. Right? This light came to the people that God had been preparing to receive the light for thousands of years. They'd been eagerly anticipating and expecting Messiah to come. And so that the people, specifically chosen by God, recipients of blessing after covenant, blessing, grace upon grace, right? These people that should have embraced Messiah with open arms 
cruelly rejected him instead. Now, it's not as if this thwarts God's plan. All right? God is not witnessing the rejection of his son and wringing his hands and sweating and saying, oh no, what am I going to do now? No. He ordained that the rejection should take place. That makes some of you uncomfortable. That's okay. Right? He told us about it well in advance. He directed his prophets to speak of the rejection that would come. Isaiah 53, right? In the the midst of this great passage from 52 to 53, speaking of the suffering servant, uh, telling us all about Messiah who would come, including verse 3, his rejection. He was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. So, we see rejection by the world, even rejection by his own, but also, and graciously, reception, right? Being received by those who would become children. Many, many, many reject. But there are some that do receive the light. Look at 12 and 13 again. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's some beautiful things here. And again, right, this is just an appetizer. This is not the full course, right? Uh, We're we're not going to exhaust this by any stretch. Much greater detail later on. But we already see some important elements here. What does receiving Jesus mean? rather than rejecting him, what does that entail? What's that look like? What does that mean? We see right off the bat that to receive him has to do with believing in his name. Now, that's an expression that's unique to John. It's just in John's writings. Believing in the name of Jesus. And it's not simply believing in Jesus, as in belief that he exists. It's not even believing that he died on the cross. We need to look at both aspects of that phrase. The belief part, what does it mean to believe? And what does it mean to believe in the name? Right. So first belief, again, it's not simple intellectual acknowledgement. Right, the Bible has other verbs that it can use for that. This is an active relational trust. It's a receiving and a resting. Uh, imagine casting your weight on something and expecting it to bear you up. Right? That's what's envisioned here. Right? I, I'm going I'm I'm to fling myself on Jesus. And he's going to catch me and he's going to hold me up. He's not going to let me fall. Right. Now, the other half of this about in the name. Right. So we think about a name. It means less these days than it used to. Right. But the name stands for something. It represents the person, the, the whole of the person, all that the person says and does. 
right? Think about uh, the admonition that you give your kids, right? Don't go tarnishing our name. Don't go doing that. Our name stands for something. We're not that kind of people. Talking about the character of a person, the sum total of words and actions. And so when you think about the name of Jesus, so think about the name of Jesus. We, we often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, which is actually a name plus a title, right? The given name of Jesus and, and the title that he holds of, of Christ or anointed one, right? Jesus means the Lord is salvation, right? Same as Joshua, the, the same name derivation the lord is salvation so believing in that name jesus is agreeing with the fact that i need salvation i need to be saved i need to be rescued i need to be delivered it's admitting that you know what i've been a rejecter of the light i have loved darkness instead of light i have rebelled against the light and i need to be rescued and to believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed and appointed one of God, is to believe that only he can do it. He's the only one qualified, the only one anointed and appointed by God who can rescue. Only he can pay the penalty for my rebellion. Only he has suffered in my place, taking my punishment. And when we do that, when we believe in the name of Jesus who is the Christ. When we receive and rest upon all that he is and all that he's done, he gives us something in his grace. He gives us a right. He gives us a claim to stake about being and becoming children of God. When I receive and rest upon what Christ has done for me, I enter the family in a way that I wasn't before. I've mentioned this before, don't want to rain on some of your parades, but we are not all God's children. Peace, love, and happiness. Okay? Now, there is a sense in the universal fatherhood of all that God has created and made, but there is not a sense of he is my Abba Father and I am his beloved child outside of a relationship with and through Christ. Right? These verses speak of becoming children. You can't become something if you already were it. You become something that you weren't before. Right? And so this is a right, this is a privilege that is given to us. It's something that the light, Jesus, gives as an act of grace. And in verse 13, we get a little more insight into who those children are, how they became children. And this goes a long way toward answering my very first question. Why do some people fall in love with Jesus and others do not? Why do some follow Christ when many, many don't? All children have to be born. But the children of God are born a special way. 
John likes to use the negative a lot in explaining things. Here's how something happens. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It's this. Classic example right here in this introduction. Three nots, right? How are the children of God not born, right? How, how does someone not arrive at being a follower or a lover of Jesus? Well, it's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man. And so all three of those nots and nors kind of give us the sum total. It's not natural, physical childbirth. That's not how children of God are born, right? It's not of blood. It doesn't come through your family tree. It doesn't come from who your mama was or who your daddy was. Though, we're going to get into that in much greater detail in chapter 8. Right. So again, John, it's, it's just a great little introduction, this prologue, giving us little teasers of everything that's to come. Nor is the will of flesh or the will of man involved. Right? See, the, the natural desire and process of, of procreation, right? Parents decide we would really like to have a child, and then they actively engage in the process of trying to create a child together. But becoming a child of God isn't like that. It has nothing to do with our desires or our wills. After those three negatives comes one big positive. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it is this. Children of God are born of God. It's not a physical, natural process, but a supernatural one. You've got to be born of God. And so, uh, again, it's a little tease of what's to come. We're going to get to chapter 3, which we looked at in not too, too long ago in our Born Again series. All right, we're going to get to look at, again at that, what it entails to be born again, to become children of God. Do you see in all of this? Can you perceive, can you taste God's amazing grace in this? Right? Not only that he'd send a son, but that he'd send one to go ahead and prepare. Right? And even though the vast majority of the world would blatantly, obstinately, defiantly reject the son, he intervenes with grace, causing some to be born again, to be born of God that they might receive and rest upon the life and death of this one who is the light, the true light who came into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. You want us to fall in love with Jesus. You know that he is the most lovely thing in all the world. And yet we won't and we can't without your help. So thank you for your grace. Thank you that the light shines in darkness and that darkness has not overcome it. But that you, through your powerful spirit, come in unblind eyes that once were darkened. You unstop ears that once were deaf. You remove hearts of stone that hate 
light and love darkness in its place and you give us new hearts. That truly do love Jesus. Not because we decided to fall in love with him, but because he loved us first and sacrificed himself for us. Grant that the grace of your spirit would be actively at work in all of our hearts this morning, drawing us closer to the light and to receiving the life and light that he offers. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.